So we're going to continue with the same title that we had last week, The Unintended Consequences of Compromise. Looking at Lot and the compromises that he had made along the way and how he just wanted to move, find a new place to be so that he was not close by Abraham and those livestock because there just was not enough land. So they went and they got away, went to a different place. But he chose a place called the Plain of Sodom. And it was a well-watered, well, um, it was a great place to have your sheep, your, your goats. And so they moved there. But then eventually, over time, he got next to the city. Then he was in the city. Then he's sitting at the gate. And there were some consequences that he is experiencing here in chapter 19 in his family and therefore within himself as a result of those compromises of moving in close and tight to an ungodly place and surrounding your family and your own life with such wickedness. It did not go without its payment being required on his family. And how sad it is. So if you weren't here last week, I would really ask that you would listen to last week's message because last week's message ties into this week's message. And there's just things I can't repeat at all. But um, one of the main points we talked about was the authority of God's Word and that God's Word tells us how to live our lives and we don't get to just pick and choose how we want to live. And so um, we spent a lot of time talking about that and I would encourage you to go look at that. Um, Verses 12 through 14 is where we're going to begin and we find out that judgment is no laughing matter, although to some, evidently it was. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city. Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place. So the angels are speaking. Because of the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So the Lord went out and spoke to his, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Now that isn't so surprising from a biblical point of view. Because you can imagine that when Noah was building the ark, and he was saying judgment's going to come, the Lord's going to send a flood. They're like, what's a flood? And what's this big thing you're building? And you're going to put all these animals on it? What is wrong with you? He was a preacher of righteousness. And who does he preach to? He's preaching to his generation. I'm sure he had to endure the mockery and the hostility of that generation. Peter says that in the last days, when we go about telling people that the Lord is returning and he's going to come and that he will bring judgment, that they will laugh and they will mock and they say, oh, really? That's interesting. He's been gone forever. I don't think he's coming back for you or for judgment. And we can continue to live however we want to. But what the word says is that God is delaying his coming and therefore that judgment because why? He's not willing that any should perish. It's his mercy that is keeping his hand back and is staying his hand of judgment upon the world at this time. Judgment was imminent, and Lot understood that he had to get his family out, although we're going to see that this is a guy that dragged his heels big time. But as he went to tell his family, 
they didn't take him seriously. They didn't believe that what he was saying would actually take place. Again, not so different than maybe the way some of your family thinks. When you talk about needing to be right with the Lord and that in the next life there will be a judgment. Because this is the thing. Sin has a way of eroding our sense of accountability to a creator. And the further you get into sin and the further a society gets into sin, the, the less of a, an awareness there is that I've got to answer for how I live my life. Oh, God doesn't care. Oh, God won't judge. If there is a God, I'm sure he wouldn't judge. I'm sure he wouldn't care. He just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. And holiness will make you happy. So it's not that God's not interested in your joy. I don't mean that at all by my statement. But just that this idea that I can forego holiness because I think this will make me happy is not a biblical concept whatsoever. Why did they not take him seriously? Well, we just talked about this is often the case where sin is abounding, that there's that eroded sense of accountability. But hopefully it wasn't because Lot's life so lacked integrity. And of course, the Bible says, that they calls, the New Testament calls them righteous lot. But maybe there was so much around, they just could not see any longer that what he had to say was really the case. Whatever it is, I'm sure these are some of the things that he would have listed as the unintended consequences of his compromise and moving near to a place like Sodom, and then staying in a place like Sodom. It's one thing if you don't know it, but he knew it, moved there, and stayed there. In the midst of the outcry that was going up to the Lord, he remained in that place. The unintended consequence is that when judgment comes, his family was still going to be in that place. So he comes out. He seems to be all right overall. Nobody else does. Now, his wife's going to come part of the way. And his two daughters, well, you can judge for yourself in just a moment about them. So Lot comes out, but does he ever imagine the day he's moving into the plain of Sodom that he would one day not have his sons coming? That his daughters that are married to his sons-in-laws, that they would not come? I'm sure he could have never foreseen that that was the case. It wasn't part of what he wanted to do. No, we're different. We'll be set apart. Just like Abram and Sarai are set apart, my family is going to be that way. But you know, we never hear of Lot ever worshiping the Lord. In fairness, the story is more about Abraham than it is about Lot. So silence is not a good way to build an argument, but we don't see any of that. We don't hear him making an altar. We don't hear him calling upon the name of the Lord. Even after he's rescued, he goes back into that city to live there. And so he hangs out and he ends up, as we're going to see, losing his family. Verses 15 and 16, um, we see that Lot lingered when he was commanded to hurry. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So even though this judgment was going, and even though he was saying judgment was coming, he was not moving. And maybe that was the disconnect for the sons-in-laws. What are you talking about? You're still here. You're still hanging out. You're not in a hurry. And he's remaining there. Maybe the reason he's not hurrying 
is because he's wanting to see if there'll be a change with family, which certainly is a possibility and a reasonable um, emotional response. But the commandment is to hurry and to not linger. And I think as we think about this in our own life, we can talk about how the Bible says that we should forsake all weight and all sin. Things can be a sin, something you know is wrong that God has said do not walk in, or it can be a weight. It's not necessarily sinful, but boy, it's not helping you along the way at all in your walk with Jesus. It's slowing you down. It's keeping you from serving him. It's compromising the way you live and you walk and you live your life. So the question I want to pose to you is, the Lord's spoken to you, maybe about some weights. Are you hurrying to carry those out? Or are you lingering in that place of not deciding? I'll get to it later. When I get older, you know, when I get more money, when I get this done, when I get that promotion, when I get this raise, or when we make this move, then I'm really going to get serious. Says who? I mean, the best way to judge what you're going to do is looking at what you do right now. That's probably what's going to happen. And so what should you do right now? If the Lord is speaking to you about things that are involved, that are in your life, they're not sinful. They're just weights. It's keeping you from doing what God has called you to do. And you know he's called you to do it. You know this is the way he wants to use your life. But yet all these other things keep you back. You know, Paul, writing to the Philippians, said that we should approve of the things which are excellent in our life. That's a pretty narrow window. There's, you know, the enemy of excellent is okay. And we can allow so many okay things into our life that we have no time, no energy, no place for the excellent. You've got to make the choice to live for the excellent things that the Word of God and the Spirit of God lead you into. And if you are lingering in one of those things or a sin, it is time to hurry out of it and to learn from Lot and his family. The angels literally grabbed their hands and dragged them out of the city. And this was a merciful act of the Lord. <laughs> but you know, there's no, you know, this, when Lot's wife is going to turn back to the city and she'll turn to a pillar of salt, she's going to be judged. The Lord doesn't stay her head from turning. The Lord can move and intervene in our life. And you probably have a testimony it's like, man, I was dragging my heels and I wasn't doing this. And God got me out of this situation. He was so merciful to me. And he does that. And we can be so thankful to the Lord that he does those types of things. I wasn't even really ready, but it happened. And I can look back now and say, thank you for your mercy. But that is no way to try and live your life like that. You must take responsibility for yourself and your actions and not just wait for the Lord to grab you and to drag you into a place of safety. So be careful of those subtle compromises that you're waiting to deal with later. Or that outright activity of sin that you're engaged in and saying, later, just a little while longer. No, the word is to obey him today. is to hear the voice of the Lord and walk in that obedience. Verses 17 through 29, a larger section, deals with uh, Sodom and how it was destroyed by fire. We'll begin by looking at verses 17 through 21. As Lot is making his escape, it says, So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Listen to this. Then Lot said, Please, no, my lords. Indeed now, 
your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, the city is near enough. And it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Now eventually he is going to move to the mountains. So he's lingering. He's hanging out when he needs to be moving. He has to be dragged out of the city. And now he's out. And the word is, get up into the mountains and you'll be safe. And he says, no, if I go to the mountains, I'm going to die. It's a, I don't know what you call this exactly. I mean, certainly we could call it a lapse of faith, a lapse of, of belief. Or it's just a man who's in compromise still and does not want to get fully away. I think we'll have to wait till we get to heaven, and I don't know that we'll be quizzing Lot on his mistakes. I'm kind of hoping we don't. You know what I mean? Because then somebody might be quizzing me on mine. But if you get a chance to talk to Lot, say, why did you not want to leave? What was the real deal there? But it just kind of sounds like a whiner, doesn't he? It's just a little one. Please just let me stay here. If I leave, then I'm going to die. But I'm sparing you. The Lord has sent me and my, my companion to tear you out of the city and get you in a safe place, and then we're going to judge. What do you mean you're going to die? You're going to be fine. Get up in the mountains. Please, it's just a little one. And there is this affection and affinity that he has to the wickedness of this region that he just can't break with. And I say this because in the text, the way it reads is if he didn't stay there, it would have been judged also. Meaning the outcry from that town was going up to the ears of the Lord just like it was in Sodom and just like it was in Gomorrah and the other cities. And yet he's unwilling to pull out and to go because he's caught, he's snared. And so he is able to stay. You know, just because the Lord gives you what you want doesn't mean it's what you need. You can ask for the Lord to give you something, and you may get it, but it doesn't mean it's his best. It doesn't mean it's the right thing. And I don't know, maybe he, it's his wife. Maybe it's his daughters that are influencing him. Just so we can't go to the mountains. Ask for this city. The text doesn't say it, so it's pure speculation. But why is it that he was unwilling to go and to head out of that scene. Verse 22, it says, Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. So this little city he wants to go to. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So he gets his desire, gets his wish, and he goes to the city. But just notice that God is a righteous judge, and he will not destroy the innocent with the wicked. He will not do that. Um, I would not base my... Uh, theological position of the pre-tribulation rapture on this account alone, but I do believe it illustrates the fact that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And when God pours out his wrath upon the world during the great tribulation, the enemies who are experiencing this say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. This is why I believe the church will not be here during the great tribulation, because we cannot be in a place that God is destroying so verse 23 and 25, it says, The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord out of the heavens, or from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, 
all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. So the cities, the town, and the vegetation was all obliterated. There's a, a slide they can put up here. This is a picture of um, the area down towards the southern part of the Dead Sea. It doesn't look like a very good place to have your sheep graze, does it? But it wasn't always like that. It was once a well-watered area. It was a place where there was all kinds of vegetation. That's what drew a lot down to this area. And this is towards the southern portion of the sea, uh, excuse me, the Dead Sea. Some would say Sodom Hat was up in the north. Um, okay, it's a debate. We can't find the cities. We don't know for sure. But most people hold to the idea that it was down here in the south and that he was there. But this is the way it looks to this day. You know, some will say, well, you know, there is no archaeological evidence of Sodom and it's never been found. So what actually happened is there was this natural disaster that took place because there's all kinds of asphalt pits around here. There's a lot of um, gases and there's earthquakes. So it probably cracked open, a spark hit, and this place just got torched. And then, then later people added all of these other kinds of sin and tried to turn it into a, a lesson about not sinning. But there really was not God's judgment. No, it really was God's judgment. And it is true there are all these natural elements around. And if God wanted to just ignite them, he could do that. Maybe he just did it in a different way. But it is certain that it's been destroyed. And the fact that we haven't found Sodom and Gomorrah is not evidence that the Bible is not true. God was thorough in what he did. And if we ever find it, we're going to find that this is a place that was burned by fire, just like they found the city of Jericho when it was burned by fire. So archaeology does not back up everything that the Bible has to say because they have not found all those things. So where archaeology is silent, the Bible is still true. And so, but, but certainly the elements to um, set off a fire um, was, well, this area was a perfect place for that. Verse 26, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, Jesus told us to remember Lot's wife, didn't he? In Luke 17, verses 32 and 33, he says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. She looked back, essentially saying, I can't live in this little tiny city called Zoar. Everything I love and everything I want is back there. That's where life is for me. And then she died. She was told not to look back. It was a statement of the fact that she would not really ever leave that place. And her heart was there. And the Lord says, remember her. Remember that you're not going to save your life and then find fulfillment. You're going to find fulfillment when you take up your cross. When you deny yourself and you live for me. That's when you're going to find out what the fullness of life is. But our flesh argues the other all the time. All day long. The world tells us the other. Is that if you really want to know happiness. You've got to indulge your desires and your, your wants. And then you're going to live. But, the, but Jesus said don't believe it. Don't believe it. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back in longing desire for things, saying this is what really will bring me fullness, but it cost her her very life. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the easier it is for us to, to not want this world, but to want what he wants. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. In verses 27 through 29, um, I'm just going to summarize here. 
We just see that God was faithful to the request of Abraham to not destroy Lot and his family. And so Abraham, from a distance, sees the smoke of um, Sodom and Gomorrah as the city is being obliterated. But we see that God remembered Abraham. Then we move into verses 30 through 38. And we see another unintended consequence of this choice of living in Sodom and how it so thoroughly infected his daughter. So sons don't come. Daughters and sons-in-laws don't come. Wife comes, but she's gone. And now it's just Lot and his two daughters. Verse 30. If you've never read this before, hang on. Then what? Then. Lot went up from Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. So he's afraid to go to the mountains, and now he's afraid to be in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come in to us, as is the custom of all the earth. Not true. But, you know, they're trying to find a justification for their sin. Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and did not know when she, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in. And lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was wasted. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn son, uh, of the firstborn bore a son called uh, Moab. And this is the Moabites. Ruth was a Moabite and is in the lineage of the Lord, just if you're keeping track of your genealogies there. Verse 38. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. The Moabites and the Ammonites become perennial enemies of Israel. And this is... Why we probably have this story is so that as we go through and we read about the Moabites and we read about the Ammonites, we can know who this people are and what their origins were, just like we got the origins of the Edomites by studying Esau. So kind of a dark story. And there's, a, there's an ironic darkness to this in that when the angels were wanting to abuse those two men, Lot stepped outside and said, I tell you what, I'll give you my daughters and you can do whatever you want to do to them. Now, here they are in another desperate, self-made desperate situation. And their thought is to take advantage of their father as he had offered them to be taken advantage of. They essentially, these two ladies, do the very same thing that the men of Sodom wanted to do to the angels. I am certain, as anybody would be, that this was not something he had planned for. 
He didn't plan for his daughters to get him drunk and engage in an incestuous relationship. He did not plan that his wife would look back to Sodom one day and, not, and find the judgment of God or that he would leave family in that city. None of this was planned. But that's what compromise does. That's why, get it, that's why we got to be so careful. As the scripture says, you know the verse, come out from among them and be what? Be separate. We're, we're not to walk in the same course, in the same thinking, in the same activities as the world. And if you say, well, how are we going to witness to them? Then you've got the right understanding. You've got the right motivation. Yeah, we need to be in the world and to be witnessing with them. But when we're in the world to satisfy our social desires and not proclaim the gospel, that is where we can find the unintended consequences of compromise to begin to show themselves. And you're like, well, that'll never happen to me. But it might happen to your family. It might happen to brothers and sisters around you who decide to hang with you in all of that. Are you so certain that they're going to be able to endure that level of compromise around your life and that they're going to do okay? It is so important that we walk in a way that is an example for all. This is how you live your life. You know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. It's the excellent things that we are to be approving of. And that was the great failure of Lot. And so we have this tragic conclusion to his story. He made a series of seemingly harmless decisions with regard to Sodom, but ended up requiring a payment that was more than he would have ever wanted to pay out in seeing his family be so bound up by this culture. We've got to be careful. Guard yourself and guard those that are around you. As we conclude here, I, I do want to just talk a little bit more about the sin that was so prominent there in Sodom um, as given to us in Genesis chapter 19. And it's the sexual immorality. The story kind of begins with sexual immorality and it ends with sexual immorality. It starts with those that are wanting to carry out uh, homosexual acts against the angels of the Lord. And it ends with two daughters being successful and um, taking advantage of their father. And, and so we see sexual immorality. Our, our society is saturated with this desire for sexual immorality. It is sexual immorality is any sin outside of the marriage bonds of a husband and a wife. If it goes outside of that, it's sin. If it's between you and your boyfriend and your girlfriend, that is sin. If it's just somebody you may meet, that is sin. If it's in front of a computer screen, that is sexual immorality. If it's adultery, that is sexual immorality or incest or any of the other things that we've mentioned over the last couple of weeks. And it is something that is being pushed upon us. And so he's like, why are you talking about it? Well, number one, I'm in Genesis chapter 19. How can I not talk about it? That's, that's the first point. Secondly, because it needs to be talked about. You, you know, it's the, we're not going, you know, and trying to make this the issue, but boy, Sexual immorality has become the issue in our society and in our culture. As a matter of fact, a survey was done by the Gallup poll and asking Americans to estimate what percentage of the population would identify as LGBT, lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgender. And um, the answer that they got was 23.6% is what American population thinks falls into that category. 
The reality is the number is 4.5%. It is far less. Why is that significant? It's significant because in their attempt to normalize this activity, we began to be pushed back on our heels. Well, if everybody's doing this, not everybody, but you know how we say that, if everybody's doing this, well, maybe this is okay. Well, that's not the percentage. Now, among millennials, it is 7.3 to 8.1%. This is coming from surveys that were done in uh, 2015, 2016, 2017. This is when they had done that. The other thing that we hear so much of is that if you are to say the things that I have said the last two weeks, that that is hate language, that is... uh, that is a mean-spirited speech. You're going to do damage to people. You're going to keep people back from fulfilling the desires they have and who they really are. Well, I have no problem asking people to not fulfill their desires because Jesus said it first. Jesus said, don't indulge yourself. He said to deny yourself. So that is from the Lord himself. But secondly, is it true? Is it true that people that decide to live out these lifestyles, that they, they become instantly fulfilled and happy, and they are okay? No, this is not what the the, the data would tell us. The Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics states that among teens um, that are LGBT, they are 3.5 times more likely to attempt suicide as their heterosexual peers. Transgender teens are 5.87 times more likely and gay and lesbian were 3.7 uh, times more likely. Bisexual were 3.6 times more likely to attempt suicide. So what is that? Oh, society said this is a fulfillment. And they, we applaud them as they go their way. And then they go off and they think they're going to find something. But what they find is they still don't have God in their life. And because they don't have God, this lifestyle that they're now living is not right and is not fulfilling them. And they were been told and sold a bill of goods that when you do this, you're going to be fine. No, that's not the case. Our kids are killing themselves at a rapid rate that go into this. And we, we feel that so this is not loving. No, what's not loving is to encourage them into it or watch them go into it and to remain silent knowing what actually is going to happen to them. I said it last week, and I, I, I know that it was a tough statement, but I stand behind it. A lot of times the reason we choose to be quiet about this is because we're more concerned about the reaction we're going to get and the discomfort that's going to come to ourselves by speaking the truth in love than actually saying it. Yes, you will have people that will press up against you. But you know, we must be truthful because it's not just homosexual sins or the LGBT. It's all of the sins that I've made. You, you call your your family who's living together and they're committing fornication, you call them to repentance. And you're called to repentance if you are committing pornography or in front of pornography and you're, you're sinning there or whatever it might be. There's a call to repentance because of love. That's the loving thing to do. You don't allow people that are harming themselves and setting themselves up for judgment, you don't do the loving thing by remaining silent. You do the loving thing by speaking to them. But you know, and I'm I'm getting a little confused in what service I said this. I think I said it, but if I didn't, here's twice. Or if I didn't, here's once. If I said it, here's twice. I think sometimes we are more upset about America being ruined than we are about individuals being separated from the Lord in their sin. 
And we get red-faced. And our veins are popping out of our forehead because of what the homosexuals want to do. You're a Christian. You've been given a job. And your job, like it or not, is not to preserve the republic. Be a good citizen. I encourage you to do that. But that's not your job from God. Your job from the Lord is to preach the gospel. That's our job. And if we look around and we see things getting worse, job security. Your job as a preacher of righteousness is not being taken away. You can keep on preaching. Don't worry about it. But, you know, I think the world sometimes hear us as just being angry and mad at them and unloving because they're upsetting our way of life. Oh, I think they should hear that we don't agree with the sin. I think they should hear our call to repentance, but they should hear it from a voice of love, not from a voice of anger and disdain because it's not going to save anybody. They're like, well, I don't know about that. Well, then you need to read the Gospels again and see what Jesus did. Because Jesus didn't do that. Who did Jesus get upset with? He got upset with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and the scribes. The religious hypocrites is who he got upset with. To the sinners, he ate with them and he lovingly called them to repentance. And as they re were repenting, he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is who we are to be. But to say, you know, go and sin and don't worry about it is not. Jesus-style ministry. Another thing that we see is that in our country there are 20 states currently that, may, that prohibit counseling that would seek to help uh, people or minors um, turn from identifying um, or turn to their bisexual sex and to live heterosexual lifestyles. It's outlawed for licensed counselors in 20 states in the United States to do that. In the church you can do that because of our faith and of our belief. This is called conversion therapy, and they're trying to outlaw. As a matter of fact, this past week, in the House of Representatives, a bill was passed, H.R. 5. You can read it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. What they have said in there is that it will, if this passes the Senate, and the President has said he'll sign it, is that it will make it illegal to speak to anybody about living a heterosexual lifestyle or living a lifestyle of purity a sexual purity as it relates to the LGBT um, lifestyles that will become illegal even for me. In other words, this message that I'm giving right now would become illegal for me to give. And this is not something that, like they might do it. This is not some strange little caucus that's pulled together. This has already been passed in the House of Representatives. And what they say and the language is in there. There's that you cannot allow religion or your faith to be a reason to, not, um, uh, to stop speaking like this, to try and change people, that my faith, your faith, are not a reason to not do this. As a matter of fact, the bill goes on to say, among many other things, if it's implemented to its fullest, is that we would have to let transgender people come in and use whatever bathroom they want to. That when we go on our retreats and our camps, that if it's a women's retreat, that a man identifying as a woman would have to be able to go. Otherwise, this would be considered illegal. Now listen, don't worry about it. We're not going to do it. I mean, I think you know that, obviously. We're not going to walk down that road. But you know, this is where our society is headed. And are we really surprised? I hope it doesn't pass through the Senate. I hope something stops. And if it gets passed, hopefully... The courts will strike this down. 
because it's a removal of religious freedom to be able to believe and to call people to live the way we want to. So this is what's, what's going on in our world and our day. People say, well, they're born that way. You should just leave them alone. Listen, there are some that are born having both sex organs. And this is a rare birth defect. And yet they are able, doctors are able to go in and they are able to look and to see in uh, their DNA which chromosome is most uh, uh, dominant and they will choose that gender and then they can perform the necessary surgeries. That is not what's being talked about when people say they are born that way. What they're saying is they are a healthy uh, biological male, biological female, but in their mind and in their thinking they feel attracted to uh, be a man, be a woman, or to uh, have sex with the, somebody of the, the same biological sexism. It gets confusing to say all this, I have to say. And I'm not trying to be offensive, but it just th this is what is, uh, is out there. People say well, they were born that way. There is no medical evidence for that at all. Well, there's, there's been research done. Yes, you're right. There has been research done. And in both of the cases that I am aware of, they were done by homosexuals that were trying to prove something, and they did not do a fair and um, responsible uh, test. And so the medical community has never accepted those things. But the homosexual community has pushed those. So if you have heard that people are born that way, and wouldn't it be wrong for God to call people to, uh, to deny that? Okay, let's say all of that. There is cases for it. God's word still doesn't change. God's word is true no matter what. This is what God has done. God has created a man after his own image. God has created a woman after his image. And we reflect uniquely and beautifully the image of God in our gender. Whatever God had did at the creation, Satan is fighting against. Marriage fighting against it, walking in holiness. He fights it. He tries to undo everything. And this is so important that we have a clear understanding of what the Bible has to say and the attitude with which we are to approach it. I know some of you are sitting out there. You've emailed me. You've talked to me about this very issue and knowing this was coming up. And you are a Christian, You're, you love the Lord, you want to obey him, you're walking in holiness, you're walking in sexual purity, but you still deal with the temptation. Well, listen, resist the temptation and he will flee. Resist it. You know, there, there's temptation that comes that we often cannot be responsible for. All of us have had thoughts come into our mind about one thing or another, and we're like, where did that come from? Sorry, Lord, that my mind would even... You know, put those thoughts together and you immediately dismiss it and you despise that those types of thoughts would be there. That's temptation. You're not responsible and that's not sin. And so some of you are in that place where maybe there is that same-sex attraction and that is the temptation. You resist that. That's what you do. Just like the person who wants to, you know, commit um, sexual immorality with their boyfriend or girlfriend. You resist it. You want to commit adultery, you resist it. You want to indulge yourself in pornography, you resist that temptation. But if you don't deal with the temptation, that temptation is going to turn into what? Lust. Now lust you are responsible for. And you begin to bring things into your life and it begins to undo the ability and the strength to stand strong. And then that lust turns into an act which is sin and sin brings death. That is the enemy's goal in all of this. 
I close with these four things, no matter what issue it is, what sin issue, but I think it particularly applies to sexual immorality. Here are four closing thoughts that I want you to hear. I believe the order is important. You can debate the order of number one and number two. But this is how you stand fast in sexual purity. Number one, you need to renew your mind. And that's what we've just done these last couple of weeks. We've gone through the Word of God. We've read the Scriptures. We've, we've heard what God has to say on the subject of sexuality. As we've gone through the Genesis, we've talked about gender more in that, that study in the early chapters. We need to renew our mind. We need to know that though sexual immorality is something that God judges, He judged it in Jesus' body as He hung upon the cross for our sins, but to think that you can just live in it and it doesn't matter is not biblical and it's not Christian. So we need to have our minds renewed because we are bombarded daily with another voice and other cultural norms that seek to supplant the truth. So renew your mind. Secondly, and you might say firstly, but to right there, fall in love with Jesus. Because the, as you fall in love with Jesus, you're going to want to walk in obedience to him. And you're going to want to be shaped and fashioned into him. You know, it's like, well, why should I have to, you know, give up these desires I have? So you can be like Jesus. So that I can be like Jesus. That I can be shaped and fashioned by the Lord himself in sanctification to be holy for he is holy. Why wouldn't I want to be like Jesus? Why wouldn't I want to be holy like the Lord? So the more I fall in love with him, the more I'm going to want to be with him. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to read his words. You've got to let him speak to your heart. Another way of putting this, of falling in love with Jesus, is add the light of the Lord to your life. He is the light of the world. And what does light do to darkness? It removes it. You don't get buckets and mops and shovels to get darkness out of a room. You've got to get light in the room. Now you can have a whole training manual for how to get darkness out with buckets and mops and brooms and shovels. You could wear yourself out doing it. You could be diligent. You could be super, super religious in that process. But you will never get that darkness out because darkness is driven out by light. So we need to add Jesus, the light of the world, into our life. And the more Jesus that comes into your life, the more light there will be. And the more light that's there, the darkness will begin to be driven out. And I'm afraid that too many of us have heard sermons about you know, getting the darkness out without first being told to get the light in. And so we end up in failure. We end up missing the mark over and over again just because the answer is Jesus in your life. Jesus is the answer for salvation. But listen, Jesus is the answer for sanctification too. And the further you get from him, the less light there is in your life. Number three, so number one is renew. Number two is fall in love with Jesus or bring the light of Christ in. Number three, walk circumspectly. Know what you are capable of doing. And make sure you don't put yourself in the place where that can happen. If you struggle with alcohol, you're an alcoholic, then don't go hang out with bars with your friends. That's not good for you. Don't study all the new brews that are coming out. Don't go up into Nelson County and drive up and down micro, you know, the microbrewery lane there and just see what is going on. You need to stay away from that. But we all understand that. That's pretty obvious. And so walk circumspectly. 
If you are continually struggling and falling in sexual sin, then you need to break off relationships. You need to look at the things that are coming into your life that are causing you to go from that temptation to lust. You need to deal with them. You need to cut off the relationship with that man or with that woman that you're feeling adulterous thoughts towards. But you, you, nobody knows it yet. You know it, but you haven't cut it off because, well, you know, there's nothing wrong here. You need to walk circumspectly. You need to cut these things off. But I will tell you that so often people are unwilling to give up a relationship, a computer, a phone, a group of friends to walk in holiness. And what they're saying is pretty much just like a lot back there outside of the city of Zorah. It's just a little one. It's just a little one. It's okay. Just, just let me go here. I'll be all right. Well, you can have freedom to have certain friends and have certain things around your house, have a certain job. But if it leads you to sin over and over again, the word of the Lord is, is to cut that off and throw it away. Not, in, not continue to indulge it. So walk circumspectly. And the last one is de- deny yourself. Deny yourself. It comes a place where you just say no. You say, no, you're not going to think like that. You're not going to walk like that. You're not going to engage in this. You're not going to go to this place. You say no to your flesh. And this is what Jesus said. That's what his disciples look like. We are people that say no to our flesh. The world says, oh, don't do that. Don't say that. That's mean. That's hate speech. No, it's not. It's what the, our Lord said. These are the words of the, our Lord. And he calls us to a life of denying self, because when we deny ourselves, then we really find life. He said, remember Lot's wife. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we need to hear it. We need to be washed in it over and over again. It's our prayer, it's our desire that you would allow these truths to sink deep into our heart, to walk in sexual purity, to walk in holiness in all areas of our life. But Lord, I especially want to pray for those that find themselves in just a struggle for this. I pray you would give them grace that as their minds have been renewed and they spent time in your presence here this morning, that they would find themselves with that grace and the strength to deny what their flesh wants.